again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in this teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell onto good soil and produced again, produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes in and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown in the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now, you might be saying, hey, she's taught this before, and, and you would be correct. But I haven't taught it in context with the overall narrative of Mark before, which changes the game a bit. Remember that Mark arranges his gospel into topics that play off of one another. So seeing this as part of a larger story and not as just a discrete parable that just plays on its own, which, which it does. Yeah, it's going to bring a real richness to what we've studied so far, and especially what we will be covering over the next few weeks. And remember, although there are wrong teachings, there can also be a lot of right teachings. All right, some things are just dead wrong, right? But there are other things because, you know, you've got facets, and you've got many different angles from which you can teach something like the parable of the sower. So don't think that I'm saying that, oh, you know, my way is the one true way. You know, there are a lot of different ways to look at it, and there are some wrong ways. We're not going to go into those. 
Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to scripture, teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext at podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my growing list of my resources actually can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So, this week we are going to have another helping of one of what scholars call a Markin sandwich meaning he takes one teaching and inserts it inside another. Our last Markin sandwich was actually uh, what we covered over the last two weeks, the Beelzebul accusation, which was wedged into the middle of the drama, yes, drama, with Yeshua's family, or you may call him Jesus, standing on the outside, also accusing him of being out of his mind, as we covered that in two separate teachings, we're going to do the same thing this week. So we'll be skipping over verses 10 through 12 and covering them next week when we talk about Isaiah 6. Alrighty then. We're starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So we're done with chapters 1, 2, and 3. And remember, chapter 1 was all about... Yeshua, you know, throwing down against Satan and then um, battling cosmic powers. Then chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 was all about him having opposition from human beings. And then we get into um, the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 where we're, gonna, we're talking about insiders versus outsiders. So Mark likes to group things in groups. Group things in groups. That was really very intelligent sounding. Sorry. Okay. So <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. This should look somewhat familiar if you've been following along with the series because right after Mark 3, verse 6, when the Pharisees went to enlist the Herodians in a plot to kill him, which evidently went nowhere, presumably since the Herodians probably didn't care, <laughs> Yeshua also went to the seaside after that incident and taught a great crowd, polis ochlos, polis ochlos, and um, here we see another mention of a boat as well, except this time he actually gets in it, whereas last time he merely had them ready to take him in the boat just in case. Now, last time the situation was more serious because the Pharisees were plotting his death, even if the Herodians weren't at this point. Um, this time, 
he has merely been accused of being in league um, with Beelzebul, and, and that accusation would have to be returned to Jerusalem and ruled on before there was any actual danger to his life. So why does he keep retreating to the places like the Eremos, the wilderness, and to the sea? Well, because these are traditionally the chaotic and dangerous places associated with demonic powers in superstitious culture, which includes not only the first century Jews, but also the later Christians. Um, both religions being quite superstitious until the Middle Ages. Um, actually, in some ways, until the Enlightenment, when, when science began to say, okay, guys, you know, let's... Let's inject some reality into some of this stuff. And, and it was in the wilderness, remember, that Yeshua battled Satan and won. Not physically battled him, but battled him by not giving into temptation. And um, where we see future, we will see future victories at sea. Okay? Again, Exodus language here. Wilderness and sea is where Yahweh traditionally tests and come through for his people, and they fail the test and do not come through for him. So, yeah, and and like I always say, and we're any different, right? Okay. And he's sitting in the boat, which was the traditional posture for a teacher to take in those days, as well as the safest for a non-fisherman, um as standing in a boat like this was not for noobs, okay? As I can personally attest to, you need your sea legs. A large crowd is gathered, and that word for gathered actually shares the same root word with synagogue. All right, verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. First thing I want you to notice is that parables is in plural. He told them multiple parables in this sitting, but that doesn't mean that Mark recorded them all. Mark notes that Yeshua taught them many things. As you will see over the next three or maybe four weeks, this specific parable is giving an important message for the people who were pointed out to us as insiders over the last two weeks. He says, listen, which, as you probably might have guessed, is the word that, uh, in Greek, that the Septuagint translators use 701 times out of 854 to replace Shema um, with, in the Greek, um, a word meaning both hear and obey. So, this word is seriously authoritative. Yeshua is speaking as one who has the power to command people to both listen and act on what they're hearing. But what they're, are they supposed to act on? We will get to that. All right. A sower went out to sow. Immediately, the focus is placed upon the sower. And as some background, there is no small debate among scholars, uh, as to what kind of sowing is being referred to here, because you could do it one of a couple of ways. 
Uh, now, what's being described here is the broadcast method where the sower just tosses the seeds everywhere, which seems insanely wasteful to us today, when most sowing is done by machines and very few of us even plant seeds ourselves, but buy plants fully sprouted from the home and garden store. I tell you that in Idaho, we have like a four-month growing season sometimes. It's it actually snowed like the first week in June here. I posted pictures. We had a couple inches. <laughs> so, you know, usually you're safe after uh, May 31st, but, but not always. But unless you want to start everything indoors, you know, that's the only way you can go. You have to buy the full-grown plants. But these sowers would cast their seed everywhere, and the question among scholars is, was the ground plowed up before or after the seed was scattered? Because you can find documentary evidence of both. It isn't incredibly important, but it's important. You know, sadly, we can only guess, whereas they knew for sure as they were listening, and it was where they lived, and they all knew how it was done. Ah, all right, let's uh, look here at um, the, Babi the Babylonian Talmud uh, on Shabbat 73b. We learned in the Mishnah, among those liable for performing primary categories of labor, one who sows and one who plows. The Gemara asks, since, after all, in terms of plowing, one plows first and only then sows. Let the Tana teach first one who plows, and after one, let him teach one who sows. The Gemara answers, the Tana ordered the Mishnah based on the practice in Eretz Israel, where they sow first and then they plow. In Eretz Israel, the practice was to plow a second time after sowing to cover up the seeds. Now, this was written 600 years later, and it might be right, but as it was written by Babylonian Jews who were undoubted, undoubtedly never set foot in the land, we can consider it, but we cannot call it authoritative. As you can see, they didn't even agree anyway. <laughs> All right. Verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Now, at this time and before in uh, Jewish folklore, the prince of demons, Mastema, was credited in various second temple area sectarian literature, yet he, he was considered a sort of demon of disaster and served the same role as Satan in Job in the Gospels uh, and Beliar, Belial, in uh, like the testaments of Levi and Zebulun and, what was it, the Psalms of Solomon? I think so. As uh, mestema is the Hebrew word for hatred and enmity, it seems likely that these would be fictional accounts of Satan called by another name, just as he is called the evil one and other such things. Now, Jubilees is a 2nd century BCE Jewish pseudepigraphic, meaning fake name, midrashic, which is a what-if, document, fictionally attributed to a revelation to Moses. But that really isn't important. It's just fluff for your next game of Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> and we're going to look at this here from Jubilees. Jubilees 11, uh, verses 10 through 12. Remember, it's fictional. 
Um, it was interesting in the times. There was a lot of this kind of literature, but no one saw it as authoritative. And the prince, Mustema, sent ravens and birds to devour the seed which was sown in the land in order to destroy the land and rob the children of men of their labors. Before they could plow in the seed, the ravens picked it from the surface of the ground, and for this reason he called his name Terah, because the ravens and the birds reduced them to destitution and devoured their seed. And the years began to be barren, owing to the birds, and they devoured all the fruit of the trees from the trees. It was only with great effort that they could save a little of all the fruit of the earth in those days. All right, so this is a um, fake name document, pseudepigraphic document, attributed to Moses, um, and, and it's talking about some Midrashic what-if fictional stuff about the father of Abraham, Terah. So, just as in the parable of the sower here, but because it was popular fiction at the time, um, people, it, it had entered into the, the people's dialogue, okay? It's legendary material is what it's called. So just as the parable, the sower here, um, we see birds coming to devour the seed that falls along the footpath. Remember this for later, because it'll be important to remember that the birds were beings associated with being agents of the enemy in snatching up seed. All right. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. That word for rocky is, you guessed it, Petrotus, which comes from Petra, which was Peter's nickname. And I'm just going to leave that right there because when we get to the interpretation, it bears more than a casual resemblance. And you may be saying, why was this guy scattering on the rocky soil in the first place? Well, you just try and find non-rocky soil in first century Israel. All right. We are so spoiled in America, let me tell you. But the seed here, but the original farmers had a lot of had a lot of rocks, not as much as they did over in Israel, but yeah. But the seed here, okay, it couldn't go deep because of the hard rock. So the seed germinated and popped right up, but the roots wouldn't go deep, and so would be unable to get much water. Verse six. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Well, we could see that coming, right? I mean, I have landscape fabric down in my front yard with rocks on top of it. And I get weeds. But the roots can only really grow along the surface right under the rocks. And they're super easy to pull up. But these ones aren't weeds in Idaho. They are crops in Israel, and you know that crops are much more fussy than weeds. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's true. Verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. I love what Jeremiah 4.3 says about, says regarding this. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. But here we have the sower going ahead and doing exactly what Jeremiah says not to do. What gives? We'll revisit this later. Now, interestingly, the word for grain here in yielded no grain is actually karpos or fruit. 
all through here we're seeing words that pop up in references to our expected growth as believers and especially writings of Paul. Verse 8, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Dang, some good news for a change. Now, in keeping with my, keeping this all about actual farming techniques, at least for the moment here, what is a good harvest in the land of Israel during this time? Well, in the Jordan Valley, which was incredibly lush, you could expect to see harvests of tenfold to a hundredfold, but a hundredfold was like a total bumper crop. In the rest of Palestine, we're looking at a sevenfold to tenfold harvest. All right. This means you sow one grain and you get seven to ten back. Some of which must, of course, be retained for seed next year. So 30, 60, and 100 fold are all within the range of the best of the fertile Jordan Valley. When we look at how much of the harvest was consumed by Roman taxes, the bigger the better because without a bumper crop, people were losing their land and even starving, and they also had to pay their temple tithe. Crops were life. They weren't separated from the land like we are, and even people with gardens cannot comprehend what it was like to live and die by the sweat of your own brow. Verse 9, And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, second pronouncement as an authority figure in this parable. And both of these hear words, noun and verb, come from that very hard to... Pronounced Greek word that translates the Hebrew Shema. I, I'm not even going to, I looked at it, I looked at it, I listened to it, I was like, no, we're not doing that. So he's not only telling them to listen, he's demanding a proper response. At this point, I'm very tempted to go ahead and uh, teach verses 10 through 12, but I'm just going to limit my comments to the fact that Yeshua takes his disciples aside later when they're alone and makes it very clear that whether or not a person can hear is entirely about how they hear and respond, Shema, to Yeshua. But that's next week, and it's too important to gloss over. Let's go on to verse 10 and then skip to verse 13. Verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. Wait, what? Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables? Not just the twelve. There were more than twelve. This included some of the police, Oklos, the great crowd, who, although they were not among the twelve, they had responded appropriately and were getting special treatment. Remember, we know from Luke 10 that not only the twelve, but also the seventy-two more were sent out, able to preach and work miracles. Just like David, who had his 30 mighty men, his inner circle of three, and yet a much larger army around him. I mean, even when he was on the run. You know, I can just see them now, right? Okay. <laughs> Peter! Psst, psst, Peter! We don't know what the heck he's talking about! You ask him! Peter turns around and asks James and John to do it, but they were smart enough to pretend like they couldn't even hear him. And because Peter has not yet done anything stupid, at least not according to this gospel, he figured, 
What the heck could I lose? Not like anyone else is ever going to write this down or remember this. Thank goodness there's no internet. When we tell this story later, we'll make sure to make it a sound a lot smarter than we are. Anyway, <laughs> you know, it didn't work out that way, right? I pick on Peter a lot. Peter just reminds me so much of myself with his foot-in-the-mouth disease. <laughs> Can you relate? I mean, so often we just think we're so smart. Like, saw a meme the other day where someone was wanting to sound really smart, and they were saying that um, Jesus is a Greek name. And I just was going like, no, it's not. Jesus is, and, and Jesus was later, but, you know, somebody just wants to slam people who use Jesus, and they're not really, they don't know enough to do it. Be right back. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week is Mark 18, Mark Part 18, and we're doing the Parable of the Sower, which I know I've done before, but I'm doing it differently this time. There are so many different ways that, you know, the parables are so rich, and there are things you can teach about them that are just dead wrong, but there's a lot of things that you can teach about them that are right. So keep that in mind. Just because you hear one teaching doesn't mean it's the one true teaching unless, you know, our Savior sits you down personally and says, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about everything that can be known about the parable of the sower. <laughs> Keep that in mind. All right. Um, and if that happens to you, please call me. Um, uh, chapter 4 of Mark, uh, verse 13. And he said to them, Do you understand this parable? <coughs> Excuse me, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Okay, let's talk about parables. Parables give us an extended metaphor of something being like something else. But a much overlooked aspect of parables is that they are not straight analogies where everything matches up. The story in the parable will also be not like something else. You know, not like whatever it is that it's like. Obviously, God's not happy with people who act like the dishonest manager, right? But that parable expresses a concept that is like something while at the same time totally not being like something. So we can't get carried away with trying to make parables all line up completely with reality. It's an imperfect metaphor designed to get people to think not obsess. Um, but I want to discuss a problem with the last verse because people sometimes take and go in the wrong direction with it. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Okay, this isn't, as some claim, making this particular parable a sort of interpretive key. The seed will not always be the word of God in every parable. Sometimes the seed is the kingdom itself. Sometimes the seeds are the children of the kingdom, and sometimes the seeds are from the evil one. 
we have to listen and adapt with each new parable or we will come up with some pretty wacky stuff. But in this case, Yeshua specifically admits to the seed being the word of God. Next week, when we study Isaiah 6, we'll have a specific kind of seed there as well, which is not the word of God. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Like I said, no surprise there. And as we will see, there is no problem with this seed. It's excellent seed, which is not true in all parables. Um, but the problem is usually with the soil itself. Yeshua here is the sower, uh, sowing the word of God, namely the gospel, which is exactly what he's been doing in order to draw those with ears that hear, or Shema, hear and obey. And I mentioned before, when the parable uh, is initially given, it um, looks to us like uh, the parable, uh, the sower is careless with the seed, and, but we have to look at the generosity of God's message to the world through Yeshua. The message is meant to be cast completely everywhere and with zero exceptions. And that's a sobering message for us right there. How liberal have we been with the seed of the gospel? Are we even spreading it around at all? What have we been spreading around, if you catch my drift? <laughs> um, you know, in spreading the gospel is the one place where um, spreading around... Uh, Manure does not actually make the soil any better, all right? And you know what I'm talking about here? You know. Um, I, I know way more people who spend their time condemning people for sin without even bothering to preach the good news, and a whole lot of other people who couldn't care less about reaching the lost with the gospel because all they're trying to do is preach Sabbath and kosher eating and the feast, but do we find eternal life in those? No. We say we do not keep the law for salvation, and yet, do we believe it when we're preaching that instead of the word of salvation? It weighs very heavily on my heart. The sower, um, the sower, uh, on the other hand, he tosses the seed everywhere except into water. But we can't even be bothered. Too busy chasing knowledge and allowing people to perish every single day. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes in and takes away the word that was sown in them. Now, do you remember Jubilees 11 verses 10 through 12? Written roughly 150 to 200 years before Messiah and talking about the prince of hatred sending birds to eat up the seeds so that the people would have no harvest. We see the same picture here. Not too surprising as many of Yeshua's parables draw upon popular materials at the time. But he generally gives a surprise twist at the end. So you don't get the same ending as they were giving. Um, like parable the uh, prodigal son. Huge twist at the end there that was not what the other stories were doing. And those ones that the father just said... Forget it, you disgrace the family, you're out forever. So when, you know, open arms, people going, ah! 
Anyway. Um, so here we have a path, and there is nothing inherently wrong with the path. Uh, not if it's land that's going to be plowed up after the seed is sown. This isn't like a concrete sidewalk. This is just land where Satan gets in the way before the seed even has a chance. So we don't know that there is necessarily any problem with this soil. For some reason, the enemy distracted or destroyed or whatever he needed to do to keep the seed from sinking in. This is actually kind of neutral, and maybe you can relate to having heard the gospel when you were younger and it didn't just didn't even phase you. I can personally relate to that. I wasn't hostile to it. It just didn't even register with me. Um, verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. This is my favorite because, well, Petrodes, rocky ground. This is the Petros, or Peter, soil. Peter's the kind of gung-ho guy who just takes things and runs with them, right? Man, he heard Yeshua and he followed Yeshua and even had to fix his mother-in-law's roof because of Yeshua, I'm assuming. I bet she didn't do it, okay? He was thrilled to be following Yeshua. He's going to be even more thrilled when he goes out preaching and working miracles and even the demons are subjected to him and Yeshua's authority. He loves being associated with this miracle worker who draws crowds. It's the kind of life he never could have imagined while fishing all night and mending and drying his nets day after day, year in, year out. He was living the life. <coughs> he probably got a lot more sleep. Um, but he had no root, amazingly enough. He did endure for a while, right? Oh, but the moment his life was in danger, he drew his sword and attacked a servant by lopping off his ear, and then he ran for his life. And in the courtyard of the high priest, he denied even knowing Yeshua. He didn't even, he didn't even show up at the cross either. Heck. Heck with only following, falling away. Peter denied Yeshua when he took up that sword and harmed a mere servant. Peter denied Yeshua when he ran away that night from the guards who had come to arrest his master. Peter denied Yeshua when he claimed not to know him, even calling down curses on himself. Peter denied Yeshua when he refused to be by his side as he died. He didn't just slightly fall away. He immediately fell away once things got dangerous. Peter, who had correctly identified Yeshua as the Messiah, didn't truly know who he was. Ironic, eh? It should frankly all make us squirm more than a little bit and make us loathe to make claims of, I would never deny him. Personally, I know too many people who, over the years, uh, who, who have denied him. Even, um, you know, who I would have sworn they were solid believers. Now, fortunately for Peter... This sort of soil can be plowed and made useful, as most certainly happened with him, ending up with him being crucified upside down because he doesn't feel worthy of being crucified the same way Yeshua was. Oh, and if you've ever seen a Catholic wearing an upside-down cross, just ignore the fact that Satan has co-opted it. 
It's what's known as the cross of St. Peter and is worn in humility, not to dishonor Yeshua. I know there are memes, but the people who make memes often have not actually studied what they're making memes about, all right? And I have an entire section on my blog called Challenging the Memes, where I talk about things like that and debunk some of them. If I wanted, I could probably just do it full-time, but it just makes me feel hostile, so I don't. Yeah, that was a pointless rabbit trail. All right. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. Now we have a third category of hearers. First was snatched away immediately. That was definitely me when I was younger. In one ear and didn't even have time to go out the other. Second is like Peter, totally gung-ho and thrilled, but then as soon as times get tough, he is out there in five different ways. He is out of there in five different ways, excuse me. You know, Third way is when uh, the word gets sown among thorns. They absolutely do hear the word. It's real. Um, verse 19, but the cares of the word, world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This seed penetrates through the thorns and plants in the ground, but what springs up is choked off and fruitless. You know who this is. This is Judas. He wanted stuff. But Yeshua wasn't the kind of Messiah to give it to him, so he sold him to the chief priest. And remember, as we'll see later, Judas received the same spirit as the rest, and he went out and preached and healed people and was one of the twelve. And golly, Bob, howdy, he had every advantage we would all kill for, figuratively speaking. But despite the anointing, it was not enough. No good fruit. Think about that. He preached. He healed. He cast out demons. He did miracles, but it didn't count as fruit. And that should scare the hell out of us, pardon my French. Where'd that expression even come from? Because that's not French. Anyway, let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hello, Judas. Want to know what good fruit is? Check out the Sermon on the Mount. Meekness peacefulness, mercy, caring for the vulnerable, not mocking, not reviling, not slandering, not lusting, not retaliating, forgiving and blessing instead of cursing, and etc., etc. If you have the spiritual gift, then healing and doing miracles is easy. Nowadays with the internet, preaching is easy and you can block anyone who threatens you. And I'm not talking about physically here. I'm just talking about, ooh, I feel threatened. Okay. Heck, you don't even have to know what you are saying or even have a calling on your life. You can just go out and start barking at people. That isn't fruit. Me teaching you on this radio program is not fruit. How I treat you is fruit. 
Who I am on the inside, good or bad, is fruit. You know, good or bad. Oh my gosh, you know, we just get it so infernally wrong. Judas could move in the spiritual gifts better than any one of us. And because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, if he hadn't killed himself, he could have conceivably gone right on doing it after betraying our Lord. Which is deeply disturbing. But it meant nothing whatsoever because the seed planted in him was choking to death in the grip of all his issues and deception and desires of all that. And I don't know if Judas could have still gone on. You know, the Holy Spirit might have left him and he, and he wouldn't have been able to do it anymore. I don't know. I don't know. It's just theory. Anyway. Um... But the seed planted in him was choking to death in the grip of all his issues and deception and desires of all that. And we shouldn't imagine that we can't go on the same path. Maybe we haven't faced our peculiar temptation yet that will be the final straw before we bolt. I routinely beg God not to allow me to be tempted in whatever way that would break me. I have absolutely no idea what it could be, but there's probably something. With Judas, however, he actually went looking trouble. But what happened to Peter after the resurrection? You know, what can happen to absolutely anyone from each of the three soils? Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Boom! Game changer, right? Peter Paul, countless others, I imagine, who abandoned him and his message at the cross, who um, who figured he must have been just another crazy messianic claimant. But soil can change. Ask any farmer. Let's revisit from verse Jer for the that verse from Jeremiah four and keep on reading. Starting in verse 3, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. That's why I hate, you know, just hate verses out of context. And these were all circumcised guys, but the external is nothing compared to the internal. Anyone can be externally circumcised. You know, that circumcision of the heart is a lifetime thing, very differently. And, yeah. All right. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire. And it sounds very much like what Yeshua is talking about here. Listen! Behold, hear and obey. Plow up the soil of your hearts and receive me and allow my words to change you. Receive the gospel of the kingdom. <coughs> Bear good fruit and not just some, but a harvest impressive even by Jordan Valley standards. Become radically more loving and joyful and loyal, peaceful, patient, 
kind, generous, trustworthy and trusting, gentle and self-controlled. Cultivate meekness and humility, mercy. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Visit the sick, clothe and feed the poor, seek justice for the oppressed. That's fruit. Not sitting around reading the Bible all day without it changing the way we serve others. Reading the Bible can be the most selfish activity on earth if all it does is give us a smug sense of satisfaction and makes us know-it-alls, but, but do-nothings. It's so demanding, you know, but not the way we want it to be. We have to yield and be changed into vessels of grace, but we'd rather become vessels of wrath. Gosh, it feels better. Costs a lot less, but it isn't the right direction. We are supposed to live to serve others, to wash the feet of our Judases, and to patiently bear with the Peters in our lives, because although Yeshua knew who was who, we sure don't. Whose um, who's inadequate planting is going to end up yielding nothing but ruin and whose is going to end up being replowed and coming back with that hundredfold harvest? Heck, you know, who could know that the site of George Floyd's killing would become a site of mass conversions and baptisms? And it is. We do not know the end game. I'm going to recommend a book. Now, you know, I finished uh, about a, three weeks ago Eric Metaxas's book on William Wilberforce, Amazing Grace. Um, and now, I mean, like, I'm recording this on July 12th. Oh, it's my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. I'll call you. <laughs> um. Either I did or I didn't at this point. And she might be going, oh, you know, you did not. I'm, I'm terrible for remembering such things. Anyway, um, he, uh, William Wilberforce's uh, biography, Amazing Grace by Aaron McTaxis, who wrote Bonhoeffer, um, Pastor, Prophet, Martyr, Spy, also incredible book. He, um, he's the reason the slave trade ended in Europe long before it ended in America. But he's probably also the main reason that abolition took hold in America as well. Way better than the movie. Just unbelievably better. And um, besides that, I, I'm going to recommend Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. It should really be required reading. My dear friend Dina Dye, years ago, five years ago, recommended it to me. And uh, I wish I'd read it a long time before that. It, it's a game changer. Oh, so next week we are going to um, talk about Isaiah 6, and we'll find out all about ears that hear and ears that don't hear. But uh, yesterday was a sad day. And um, by the time this airs in, uh, in late August, it will kind of be old news, but uh, it's very sad. The, uh, the passing of Brad Scott on Friday. Friday night, I guess. And of course, we heard about it on um, Saturday morning. And uh, 
Brad and I do not know each other, did not know each other. We will know each other someday. But, uh, um, we run it with the same friends. We've got a lot of the same friends, but, um, we, we never met. We, we didn't talk. We just, it's funny how you can know about somebody and have all the same friends and just not actually know them. But I will tell you something that, um, I didn't always agree with him. I don't always agree with any teacher, but I will tell you about Brad. Brad always injected a lot of kindness into anything he was teaching. He was big on on teaching kindness and gentleness and fruit. And I know he was a man passionately in love with um, our God and our Savior. He, uh, he, he fought a long and horrible battle against an inoperable sort of uh, brain cancer that was... Uh, very ugly, and what it did to him was very horrific. And, uh, but he, he, he endured to the end. And I can, I can say this. I, I, I've looked around on a million shares, well, not that many, of notices about his death, and I have not seen one negative comment. There was just nothing negative to say about how he brought forth the gospel of the kingdom. He was funny. He was kind. He encouraged unity. He um, he wasn't the kind to be divisive over over silly things or, uh, or cruel or um, anything. He was a good example. He was a good example and um, we need more people like him, and his life should be um, in that. It should be an absolute um, example, not only to people just coming up in the faith, but to established believers. Um, we should all comport ourselves like that when talking about the gospel of the kingdom. Anyway, see you next week.